Hi, I'm Chris McKendry, and welcome to Equal Play, 50 Years of Equal Pay in Tennis, presented by J.P. Morgan. Now, I've been covering sports since the 1990s, and when I was first coming up, there were just a few other women in my field. In 1994, when I was hired by the ABC station to be the sports anchor in Washington, D.C., I, in fact, was the first woman in that market to permanently hold the position. Here and there, you'd see female sportscasters flying solo in their newsrooms or rising in the ranks of the sports associations, but it definitely wasn't common. We owe them so much for paving the way. While we don't always talk about it, making sure women have leadership roles off the court is almost just as important as highlighting our big-named athletes, because they are the people who shape who we see and how we see those on the court. So in this roundtable conversation, you're going to hear from two of those women who are truly the firsts, Leslie Visser and Stacey Allister. Leslie was the first woman at the Boston Globe Sports Department, the first woman to work network NFL sidelines, the first woman inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. She's also the only sportscaster in history, man or woman, who has worked the Final Four, the NBA Finals, World Series, Triple Crown, Monday Night Football, the Olympics, the Super Bowl, the World Figure Skating Championships, and the U.S. Open. And Stacy is Chief Executive Professional Tennis of the U.S. Tennis Association and the first female tournament director of the U.S. Open. Prior to coming to the USTA, Stacy was chairman and CEO of the Women's Tennis Association from 2009 to 2015, where she worked directly with Billie Jean King and raised $1 billion in revenue for female athletes. As a young executive, Stacy started her career in men's tennis, first in Ontario, then as VP of Tennis Canada and tournament director of the Toronto side of the Canadian Open. By the way, she was also the first woman in that job, too. As we celebrate 50 years of equal pay at the U.S. Open, it's time to hear from these two pioneering women. Let's get into it. Stacey Allister and Leslie Visser, thank you so much for your time on this podcast and women leading the way. You two women, (laughs) I couldn't think of two better guests, truly. And I do appreciate the time as we look back on 1973, 50 years of equal prize money at the U.S. Open. Oh, gosh. Chris, it's so much fun to see you. As I've told you many times, I spend every summer, all my friends, we sit around, we watch every tournament in the run-up to the majors. And uh, I feel like I just have seen you for the last decade so many more times than people would imagine. And Stacy, it's so great to see you again. And uh, congratulations. Aren't you winning the Billie Jean King Leadership yes. Award? Yes. Thank well, you, Leslie. I'm that is very, really very... Uh, uh, humbled be. by that uh, that it award, yeah. Leslie, let's begin with you because it seems like at that time in history there was an alignment of the stars. 1973, the original nine had a couple of years running, equal prize money that Billie Jean King pushed for, the political climate, and there was a Boston College student, Leslie Visser, who took on a Carnegie Foundation grant. Explain where that took you. 
Well, I was at Boston College jumping around in the dorm room for the battle of the sexes and just thinking, my gosh, you know, what can happen out of this that she had the courage to take that on? I remember Billie Jean, I'm sure she's shared this with both of you. I remember her telling me that she didn't just prepare her tennis game for that match. She prepared emotionally, psychologically, and she wasn't just practicing overheads in anticipation of a lob, but she had someone show her around the Astrodome the day before so she would see every corner. Where was she going to walk in? Who was she going to walk in with? And uh, yeah, I had the privilege of um, starting at the Boston Globe on a Carnegie Foundation grant. They gave them to 20 women in America who wanted to go into jobs that were 95% male which were, of course, all white-collar jobs were 95% male in uh, 1973. I had the privilege of first covering Billie Jean. I think it was a converted airplane hangar outside of Boston when uh, most people were asking her about her brother's contract with the San Francisco Giants, that being Randy Moffat. And, you know, it was just kind of, okay, Billie Jean, yeah, okay, I guess you play at Wimbledon, but, you know, please, uh, you know, we're a Red Sox town. Talk to us about baseball. (laughs) (laughs) So when you took the Carnegie Foundation grant, Leslie, 20 women who wanted to go into jobs, 95% men, and you walked into the Boston Globe Sports Department, how were you received? Well, it was astonishing. The Boston Globe, uh, they were the 27 Yankees. Every single person was the best at his position. I think we're in a total of like 18 halls of fame just from that group I wrote with. Peter Gammons was the best on baseball. Bob Ryan was the best on basketball. Will McDonough was the best on football. And of course, I had Bud Collins. I mean, Bud Collins, I'm sure he affected both of you as well. But Bud Collins, for me, I'd go to Wimbledon and I'd say, hi, I'm Leslie Visser from the Boston Globe. I work with Bud Collins. And it would be like the heavens would open, you know? I mean, people (laughs) like Tyriac were saying, what do you need? (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. I mean, when I think of Bud Collins, I have to say, it's such a privilege of mine to host breakfast at Wimbledon. But even when I say those words you know, for for year after year now, I still can't believe I'm saying, welcome to breakfast at Wimbledon. You know, that was Bud Collins. That that it's so iconic. And he he was so special. And and Stacey, take me back to the 70s for you, because about the same time, you know, young Stacey Allister was plucked out of a classroom and offered some tennis lessons as legend goes. Yeah. So it was uh, probably 1975 uh, when that happened. So I w- wasn't connected to tennis in 1973. So I got to relive the Battle of the Sexes for the 40th anniversary with Billy in London. And now to do this again in the 50th is pretty cool, along with equal prize money at the U.S. Open. When you go into these organizations, it's such a privilege. And, uh, and there was a lot of pressure. I know we're going to talk about that. But I really felt at 10 years uh, of being president and then chairman and CEO of the WTA that I left the organization in a very strong financial footing with a media deal in place where every match was broadcast. That was transformative for women's sport and for the WTA and this global expansion. We live in a global economy. We had a footprint in all of the developing uh, markets. And, you know, Billy's dream was that any girl in the world, if she was good enough, she would have the opportunity to play on the WTA tour. 
And that could that, have been you, Chris. The <laughs> Drexel so. Dragon. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'll take my college education and the opportunity to play and move along. Yeah, but no. Yeah. Oh, didn't we all dream? We didn't did. we all dream? 100%. But, but you know, t- to that point, though, Leslie, I mean, it's Stacy, it's true. If you're good enough, Billy wanted you to play on the WTA tour. But I often, and I can never thank her enough. I don't think any of us really can. I thank her because I... I'm always reminded she didn't fight for just the elite athlete. She fought for everyone. She fought for all of us. Exactly. She she truly did. And, and you know what I, I loved about her among so many things, the, the list uh, should be endless, is um, that she was the first one who taught maybe the three of us that tennis didn't just belong to the aristocracy, that her whole goal was to take it out. Not everybody is going to be white and wear white. And she she really made it um, such a simple equation that, you know, if you're good enough, you'll get there. It should be a meritocracy. Yeah, it's so true. I, I grew up on the public parks as part of the National Junior Tennis League in Philadelphia. And I love tennis because it was a team sport in my mind, because we would wear these bright colored T-shirts. You know, Arthur Ashe and Billie Jean had these visions of tennis being a team sport and the kids wearing bright colors. And we always waited to see what color will our playground be this summer? You know, I, I mean, I remember the one year we were purple. That was really successful. So that became our lucky color. And I also spoke with Rosie Casals yesterday, and that's what Rosie said. Her introduction to tennis almost didn't happen because she couldn't afford the all-white. And and she said she had to uh, swallow her pride a little and, and take a, a handout and, and wear a, a white dress that another player's parents offered her. And, she, you know, they, they all came from a very similar background, some of the original nine. And I found that fascinating. I love the original nine. The, the fact that they started with a dollar and a dream, right? It was just so and brave. Courage. And courage. And courage. So and much nobody, courage. I remember Billie Jean saying that, of course, nobody was coming to these matches, so they would go to grocery stores. And she said they would go to um, outside in the parking lots yes, of that's malls. Right. Yeah, yeah. And she said we would look for station wagons because that meant there were more people. So if we were <laughs> going to give tickets away, we would give them to eight people in a station wagon <laughs> rather than two in a small car. <laughs> you know, but uh, uh, let me jump off on that point, Leslie and Stacy, because you talk about courage and you need to have a little bit of, you had to take a risk and you had to just jump in the deep end. And Leslie, you talk about parking lots, but that's where you had to conduct your interviews as you were leading the way for women like me to follow along and actually have access to a locker room and get equal access to players for our quotes and our work. What were the early days like for you? Uh, I tried always to have an attitude of gratitude, but it was um, a real delineation. You know, the, there there were no provisions for equality. So I did have to, for the first five years, I covered the NFL, which was the biggest sport in America. I was out in the locker rooms and John Madden used to tell me I was caught in a two-way go because that's what a defensive back has to choose. Which way will I go on covering which receiver? And I say to myself, okay, if I try to talk to Terry Bradshaw going to the Steeler bus, then I'm going to lose 
the the Patriot quarterback, Steve Grogan, who's going to run off to his car. So it was a constant juggling act. And maybe like you guys, too, I didn't want to complain. I didn't want the NFL to say, see, a woman couldn't do it, or the Boston Globe to say, well, we tried having a woman. So it was a lot of self-reliance. And I, I really did look to people like a, a Bud Collins or Will McDonough or, um, you know, some players were great to me, some weren't. And, um, you know, I have a healthy amount of scar tissue. Yeah. And Leslie, when was there was there an inflection point that you felt there was a sea change of acceptance for you as uh, as a, a reporter that belonged in that locker room, in that club? Uh yeah, I would say it came maybe after seven or eight years of covering the sport because pretty soon the players knew I'd um, show up. Okay, I'll tell you one embarrassing story. I've had many of them, but okay, here's one was football. Here we go. Okay, so I was the first woman beat writer in the country for the NFL assigned to the Patriots. So they were going down to play uh, the Dolphins, and I asked the coach, Chuck Fairbanks, a couple days before, he had injuries at left tackle, and I said, who's going to play left tackle, Bob McKay or Tom Neville? And he said to me, neither one can play the position. So I go running back to the Globe, front page. The coach says, nobody can protect the quarterback. The left side of the line, he's going to have no help. Okay, the phone started ringing, of course, at five in the morning with, you know, slander, libel, things you don't read in the Bible. It's screaming at me. He And he said, I said, either one could play the position. Oh. <laughs> Yep. Well, you recovered from that quite nicely, girlfriend. Well, I, I de was devastated beyond belief. <laughs> yes. And I, I called Bud, or the great Bud Collins, and uh, he said, you get your ass down there right now and you wait for every player to show up and you face it. And I did. Wow. Hey, just one letter. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> one letter. Come on. Cut a girl a break. Yeah. <laughs> but Stacy, did you have some of those moments in a boardroom where it, you know, didn't come at first and then you said, yeah, okay, I'm here. Remember, I was in pro tennis and I didn't play pro tennis. I was a woman from a little country and physically little. <clears throat> and I would be walking into boardrooms with Grand Slam champions, you know, Don Tyriac and uh, Charlie Passarell and Butch Buckholt and Sergio Palmieri. And that was started in 1995, so I was pretty young, uh, uh, early, mid-20s. Mid and <clears throat> getting results and proving results is what ultimately got my acceptance from them. And the good old adage, women have to work harder, 100%. I was running uh, the Canadian Open, we called the Rogers Cup at the time, and we were the largest annual women's event in the world. And this is like the early 2000s. And that's where I earned my respect uh, from the boys. But sadly, you know, up until 2020, I was still the only woman in that room with the Master Series. I brought on a, a woman to run our Cincy event, Katie Haas. So I had a, a, a fellow female, but it still hasn't changed that much uh, in sort of that upper echelon in the ATP and even in the, in the WTA and the Tournament Council. We only have one female tournament director on the council. I wanted to ask you something, Stacey. Um, I think maybe, Chris, you're good friends with her too, but I'm great friends with Amy Trask, who was, of course, the only CEO of an NFL team. And she said that she would go to the league meetings, and at first there'd be people like Carmen Policy or Eddie DeBartolo, who went on to become great friends of hers, but at first they'd be asking her to get the coffee. Oh, yes. 
Yeah. And, and I mean, what was I there ever? I, no, I, you know, and I was, um, I, I, someone had said, you know, you're, you're, you belong at the table, you belong in the room, and you're not there to get them their coffee. So they get their own coffee. So I, I certainly didn't have to, um, to deal with that. I think one, one key learning for me, and this is all male room, and a, a female had come in uh, to give a, a consultant report on broadcast. And one, one of these great players finally just said, why is this woman talking so much? It was so uncomfortable, but I never had to get the coffee. And you know what? There's one thing I, I'm mindful of, and I, you know, when I'm coaching or mentoring uh, the young women in USDA, uh, you know, we, if my, you know, clean up the table, put the chairs back. And so when they were leaving the boardroom, I tell everybody, hey, come on, everybody, everybody pitch in. You know, when taking food back, it's not, it shouldn't just be the women that are, um, are doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I also, I feel like it's important too, and, and the two of you, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this is, you know, I've always recognized I'm going into a position that is new for a lot of the people around me. We're all learning. We're all expanding. We're all changing together. So, I mean, Leslie, it was 20 years after you broke through and broke barriers in the 70s. And I was a very young reporter, uh, sports reporter in Washington, D.C. And as you can recall, RFK Stadium was so tiny and the press box so small, most everybody just stood on the sidelines. You know, not just the sideline reporter, the local reporters. We had one seat in the press box, the main sports anchor took that seat, and I was told, stand on the sidelines. Okay, so first game, a security guard after warm-up says, okay, come with me. I'll show you where you're supposed to go. And I said, okay, maybe there's a seat for me or something. Or, And he ushered me into this room, and I walked in, and there was a beautiful luncheon spread and, and tons of TVs to watch the game, and it was all women. And I'm like, where am I? And, and a woman walks up to me and she said, well, who are you with? And I said, oh, I'm with Channel 7. My name's Chris McKendry. I'm a new reporter in town. You know, and she said, well, which player? You're in the wives and girlfriends room. Oh, God. <laughs> so I'm like, the security guard escorted me into the wives and girlfriends room. And, and I said, I don't belong here. I'm a reporter. <laughs> and I went back out to the sideline. And But you have to laugh at stories like that. I mean, he meant no harm. He wasn't trying to dismiss me. He had no idea that this local station finally hired a woman to work in sports. So I went back out to the sideline and stood there. But... Did you ever have moments like that where you're like, okay, that was really strange, but I'm not going to take it personally? You know what, Chris, you, your entire career, I mean, Stacy knows it, but your listeners should know it. You don't demand respect, you command it. And that's oh, a very different, you. it's a very different animal. And I think that, um, yeah, I had a lot of those. Chuck Fairbanks who was the coach of the Patriots. The very first question I asked, which, you know, I look like I had rigor mortis. I was like so nervous, you know, so coach. So, But the very first thing I said to him, he said, you know, you ought to go to lunch with my daughter. You're about the same age. And everybody else was so horrified. And I just thought to myself, you know, it's a different culture for him too. This is new. This is different. And I think all three of us have probably... Yeah kept that in mind? 
Yeah, Stacy, and, and what I find so interesting about your position, and it's different than mine or, or Leslie's, we're domestic, you know, we're we're US mm-hmm. based. Yes. You're global and you have to cross cultures and you have to have a great understanding of of different cultures and what you might take offense to, they mean no offense by. You know, how do you juggle that and how do you read a room? Because you're fantastic at it. Thank you. Look, I think uh, growing up in Canada, you know, a bilingual country and working in Toronto and Montreal, which stark cultural differences, even though the same country, I think I, I, I really, that grounded me in this cross-cultural sort of emotional intelligence. I always was wanted to be prepared on dress, handshakes, you know, the formalities, the do's and the don'ts. So I took the time to understand and respect their culture. I also think Billy taught me that. You know, she's always really, really laser focused on managing how you're working with others. It's really fascinating when you're working with the Turkish or the Qataris, the the Emiris, the Chinese, all very different. But I think just meeting and respecting their culture was, uh, I was successful, as you said, reading the room. Leslie, what's the story you have for me where it really just maybe shook you or just opened your eyes to where sports were taking you in your life? CBS sent me to the fall of the Berlin Wall. And it was just profound. It was um, to do how would sports change in East Germany. As you guys all recall, the wall fell in 89. So the Olympics right before that, where the East Germans had gone from winning, you know, like maybe four medals in the Summer Olympics to about 30. It was how was sports going to change? And I got to go through Checkpoint Charlie and I did an interview in East Germany with uh, Katerina Witt, who of course was the beautiful face of socialism. And uh, it was just, um, I mean, I can get emotional every time I think of it, you know, people walking from Potsdam and Dresden just to get through the Brandenburg Gate, just to taste freedom. Amazing. Wow. That is amazing. That is. You know, I think it's so important for women and why I, I love connecting with Leslie in this conversation. The idea of see it and be it, right? And how important it is for young women to see someone in Stacy's position, you know, the first woman. She's running the U.S. Open. I mean, that is such a colossal undertaking. Or Leslie, for you, honestly, 1992, Super Bowl, uh, Minnesota. (laughs) I was a field reporter um, just fetching sound bites for people. Had no idea, even really, it hadn't even crossed my mind yet. Like, I think I'll go on air. It was more, I really hope I can keep a job, right? (laughs) It was still in that stage. And I saw you. And I happened to be in the same sort of huddle holding a microphone, and I listened to you, and I stared intently at you. I thought, I think I could do that, you know, because I loved sports. And then later in in discussing and and talking with you, you said, you know, some women love TV, and then they find sports. Some women love sports and end up on TV. (laughs) And I thought, I'm like, Leslie, I love sports, and I might end up on TV. Well, I even was shocked myself at at that Super Bowl. Um, 
I'm still the only woman ever to have presented the Lombardi Trophy, the, to handle the Super Bowl Trophy presentation. And it was that Redskin went over Buffalo. And we were in, I mean, you guys all know, production meetings are massive at major events. And so we were having them all leading up to the Super Bowl. And so we'd done the pregame and then the game. And now it came to the postgame. And Ted Shaker, our executive producer, said, okay, postgame, um, we're going to have Leslie handle the Lombardi Trophy presentation. And I am not kidding. Everyone's mouth fell open, including mine. Because You had no idea? No, it was a total well, surprise. no idea. And there was Brent Musburger, and there was Terry Bradshaw, oh. and there was Greg Gumbel, people who had done this. So <laughs> and expecting was, to do it. And of course, and had earned it. And I was really. So yes, there are moments. What's one for you, Chris, where you heard you were going to be doing something and you said, gosh, really? I would say probably Trophy Presentation U.S. Open 2021. Handing a, a, a trophy is just so, wow. Um, it's such a moment and it's such an honor to be um, the presenter, you know, who gets to do that. And then the biggest year was, and I'll never forget the moment, but I had already prepared for it. And I actually spoke with our executive producer, Jamie Reynolds, a day prior. And I said, look, if Novak Djokovic completes the calendar slam, this is my thought. And if Novak Djokovic loses tomorrow and doesn't complete the calendar slam, this is what I want to do. And he said, yeah, it's your it's your moment. You you handle it. You decide how it needs to be done. And, you know, because you I had to be in that moment. And of course, he didn't win the calendar slam. And as we're standing there getting ready to go out and they're putting up the podium, he is heaving. Yes. Sobbing. 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 I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I mean, it happened so quickly. And I thought, okay, I need to prepare for, for plan B. And my plan B was, if this man does not win this title and have this moment, I am handing them the microphone. I am a human being first, and I am getting him off the stage as quickly as possible. Like, this is, tennis is the only sport, you know, Leslie, that the loser has to stand there with the winner getting the trophy. Very strange. Right? It's very it's, strange. It's, it's so unusual. And yet they have to show such grace and most do and such composure. But And in that moment, I, I don't think Novak ever felt so loved by the crowd there before. But that's all I could think of is I am... I am handing him the microphone. And he even gave me a second look because he's so used to questions. And I was, no, it is your floor. You say as much or as little as you need to, but we are getting you the heck out of here. <laughs> you no, handled it wonderfully. And it, it happened gutting. so lovely uh, in such a, you know, a really, really sad moment for Novak. There was a turning point with the fans. He had never felt that love from the New York fans. It was really quite remarkable. Don't you think we saw that with Martina, too? Remember her U.S. Open, where she really just dissolved, and people loved her for it. They loved her. I mean, she'd always been emotional, of course, but I think that that was a turning point for her. I mean, tennis is the ultimate passport. At ESPN, I mean, Jamie Reynolds, again, my boss, will tell you, I, I bothered the heck out of him trying to get on this gig. <laughs> I really did. You know, I always tell young women, I always say, don't be afraid to let people know what you're interested in, but show them you're willing to work for it. Don't act entitled. You know, so I would take any little morsel in the, in the tennis environs they gave me. And then I'd watch and I'm like, you know what? A better host, nobody uses a teleprompter. The best hosts don't use teleprompters. And SportsCenter was a very teleprompter-driven show. So I started going back to SportsCenter saying, this interview I'm doing, there's not going to be a teleprompter. You just have to follow me. Like, 
and and I worked on it. You know, I I wanted to show, but I kept knocking on the door at Jamie's and saying, "Do you need anybody for you know for the French Open? Do you need anybody? Do you need another?" And and eventually, um, you know, worked your way there. But what advice do you offer, you know, younger women? I mean, Stacy, what do you tell women uh, you who what, say that was... I want to be you, Stacy? Yes. I want to be a CEO. Yes, yes, okay. yes. <laughs> Look, um, exactly what you what you did. You have to be proactive. You know, a, a lot of uh, of us think, I'm just going to do good work and someone's going to come along, tap me on the shoulder, and then they're going to say, hey, come on, you know, let's, uh, you could be the tournament director of the U.S. Open. You, you have to see those opportunities, find allies in the organization who will promote you and lift you up. When those tables and they're talking about who can present the Lombardi trophy, who can pr- present the U.S. Open trophy, who can, in fact, be the first female tournament director of the U.S. Open? And that, I think, holds everyone in good stead. Don't wait. And don't don't be shy about it. You weren't shy about it. I wasn't shy about it. Allies. You just said a very important word, yep. Stacey. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that, Leslie? How did you find allies amongst the few of you who were <laughs> leading the way? Well, the great Chris Brennan and I used to say, we, we know we will have made it when we're all not on each other's Christmas card list. <laughs> there were about five of us. But uh, I, th- I think that um, it's been very important to me. I, I started right in the beginning saying there isn't just one slice of pie that belongs to me, that the pizza has eight slices or even cut it up more and you can have a slice and I can have a slice. But uh, I do think both the advice that you two just gave is really, uh, I hope people really listen to it. I I always thought to myself that young women need three things, or young men, anybody going into any business. I think you need passion. You know, I think if you don't love it, don't do it, because it'll come out somewhere, right? You won't, someone else will get an assignment you thought you should have had, or you'd be angry about the money. Uh, I think you need knowledge. Um, Knowledge gives you confidence that it's unassailable if you have knowledge. And I think third, you need stamina because, you know, the Ferris wheel goes up, but the Ferris wheel comes down and you have to be prepared that I can handle the whole journey. Yeah, that resilience gene really has to be flexed Mm -hmm. all the time. And there being a pie large enough for everyone. I love that, um, Leslie, because I that is one thing I really like about the the younger generation that I look at now on on air. I love seeing how many shows have multiple women. You know, it was sometimes it, I found it hard to find friends and allies because every show just needed one woman, right? So when I came along, it wasn't like, oh, awesome, a friend. It was, oh no, she's after my job. And you know, that was a hard way to to handle things. And in fact, here's another one of my Leslie Visser is such a great person um anecdote is <laughs> I know this is like fangirling, but 99 Women's World Cup, I begged for that assignment. I loved soccer growing up, wanted to be a part of Women's World Cup. And I remember an executive at at ESPN saying, you really want to stop doing the X Games for the Women's World Cup, right? Nobody had any idea how big 99 was going to be. I mean, it started 
time and it just kept exploding. And I said, absolutely. Like, I want to be a part of this. Whatever this movement is, I'm on board. Oh, okay. A movement. Sure. Put McKendry on it. Right. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, it was like, it was, it, they weren't sure what it was going to be. So you didn't go to Robin or to Leslie or to Linda, like the bigger names ahead of me on the pecking order. So I, I got put on the sidelines and I traveled around with the team all summer long. And well, my gosh, by the time it got to the Rose Bowl and, you know, it was just so enormous, that whole quarterfinals, semifinals, finals, and more and more bigger names were starting to now be attached to the production. And I thought, OK, at any moment here, you know, Chris McKendry, get out and in comes, you know, somebody bigger. And it didn't happen. But the morning of the final, Leslie, you left me a voice message that oh. said, go make it a memory. How you know, cool don't, it's, it's not just a game, go make it a memory. And I was like, oh my gosh, the day of an assignment that probably should have had Leslie attached to it. <laughs> Instead, she left me a message telling me to like, go make it a moment. And, and that was so huge. But Leslie, a lot of women weren't like you. You know, you were very different in that you always found room for others. And I think that's important going forward. And, and I'm wondering if you see it changing. And I know you do a fantastic show and you've been a, connected to a show, at least at CBS, that was all women. It is CBS. Thanks for that, Chris. And I'll tell you where I got that from. The great Red Smith, who was, of course, the first sports writer to win the Pulitzer Prize from the New York Times. He used to ask a young writer at the Kentucky Derby to walk the infield with him. And uh, so it was you know, like a blessing from above if he asked you. That was about 22 years old. He said, I'm going to give you one piece of your advice for your career. Wherever you go, whatever you do, make a memory. Uh, and that's where I got it. And so I, I, I try to tell my favorite people of which you are one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Because Thank you for passing that on. To make a snapshot in your head. I'm, you know, I'm sure, Stacey, you've done that too. I'm sure there've been moments that a a grand slam, and you said, gosh, here I am, or here I am on the when they're presenting the trophy. By the way, Stacey, do you go over various things in your own head to say when you know the interview's coming your way? Oh, I'm a real student of preparation. I, 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 I sort of really need to think it through. I have my notes, and, uh, and then I'm ready to roll. Obviously, I can do impromptu. And the one thing that people probably don't know about me is that I'm very shy, and an introvert. I'm a professional extrovert by day. Uh, as, and so I work hard at it to be able to feel comfortable and to make sure you say all the right things. But again, I think we talked at the early part, just human, right? Be human. And I think if you follow that uh, pathway, we uh, usually don't mess up. But you know what, Leslie, how, how did you have that spirit that on the day that Chris is going to do the final, that you leave her a voicemail? Like, and lifting women up and supporting them. That's so critically important. Yeah, and I think that um, I always played on teams as a kid. And that was uh, something that, why can't we all be on a team? And I think growing up in Boston, which is sort of interesting, the the Celtics did not lose the NBA title until I was in high school. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they, they did it by being a team. Bill Russell did not have the greatest stats. You know, he changed the game through his rebounding. But, you know, the Casey and Sam Jones and Bob Cousy, they played as a team. So I grew up, it must have been in my DNA that we're all in this together. You know, we're all going to win or, or um, lose honorably, but um, we're well, your, in it together. Your point about there's room for all of us. And it might come mm -hmm. at different stages. 
uh, in the journey. Right. You know, Stacey, can I talk about something too that it's not totally, uh, you know, always uplifting? You talk about being human and you had a really human moment when you left the WTA mm-hmm. and said, you know what? I'm burnt out. Yep. Like I'm trying to be everything. And I sometimes classify it as our generation, we try to be everything our moms were and everything they weren't allowed to be all at the same time. And it's exhausting. exhausting. <laughs> and you, you said, I'm exhausted. Like, so I'm curious, what are some of the biggest sacrifices you've made to pave the way and to, you know, walk a path that no one did before you? You know, probably the sacrifices have been uh, not spending time with my husband, John, and my kids, you know, and and taking my moving from Toronto to Florida to to uh, join the WTA. I think my mom's heart is still broken that I took her grandchildren away <laughs> from her. So, you know, to do these jobs, we travel a lot. Uh, you you both know this, and you, we leave our loved ones behind. And, um, you know, that's, that's, I think, probably for me, the biggest sacrifice of this 35-year career. But the good news is they're now older, and uh, we're, we're currently empty nesters. So John will be at the U.S. Open for two weeks, <laughs> which would be great. <laughs> probably won't get to see him there either. Well, you know what? It's always like, I'm like, like, Go, he goes, can you have lunch? I'm like, no, I can't have lunch. No, can't have lunch. <laughs> Go back and watch. <laughs> How about you, Leslie? Uh, I made um, my family the people I traveled around with. And I'm sure you experienced the same thing. Your family has to be that group, Chris, that you're on the road with all the time as a, a second family. And mine would go from the, Sa- the NCAA tournament people to the NFL people. I still have a posse of girlfriends in New York that um, are all Andrea Joyce, all our buddies. Oh, Carrillo. Yeah, it's all it's all the people you'd imagine. And uh, yeah. I you know, I've tried to keep them for decades because I just have found that making your friends into your family has been very important to me. It's great. Yeah, yeah me too. I, I agree with that. That I feel like that with my, we always say my ES, our tennis family, you know, hey fam, how we doing? <laughs> you know, but look, when you live in a Wimbledon house with your colleagues for, for two weeks and truly sometimes we were be on the road together, you know, 10 weeks out of a year. I mean, living together, morning, noon, and night. Yeah. And you know what, Chris, you can feel it. You know, when I come into the green room or we're in our production meeting, you can feel the camaraderie and the real friendship that you have with, with Chrissy and Pam and Mary Jo. It's yeah. real. Yeah, it is. They're they're my girlfriends. It's fun. You know, it's nice to have girlfriends on the job after often just being with all the men, you know, especially on Sports Center. It was, you know, lunch with the boys. I used to talk about, you know, they would look at my lunch and be like, Hey, you gonna eat that? And like eat right off of my plate. And I was like, What what are you doing? Like, yes, can I'm we, going to can eat we it. Guess just which not one? Can we guess which one? Can right. I have roll? I'm like, wait, leave my chips alone, you know, <laughs> stop eating off my plate. But but that was good times. It's time for My Two Cents, a segment sponsored by J.P. Morgan. At the end of every show, I like to take a moment to reflect, and I want words of wisdom from both of you. So, Leslie, let me start with you, and then, Stacy, you just jump right in. What do you recommend for women who are just joining the profession? Oh, I'd say to them... Uh... It's an old uh, Shakespeare from Taming of the Shrew. Strive mightily, but eat and drink as friends. Stacy, top that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I tell uh, every young woman coming into uh, the industry, you need to get sales experience. 
and you need to be proficient at communication. Uh, those are the such key things along the whole journey. You're constantly selling yourself, selling ideas, and communication is the key to be able to navigate and command respect uh, in the room and play the game. If you look back, is there anything you would have done differently? Certainly at the WTA, uh, became chairman CEO 2009. And about 18 months later, my right-hand president, David Shoemaker, a good friend, he got the job to be CEO at MBA China. And I didn't replace that position. You know, I thought, oh, I could do it to lift up the senior management, the financial strain. And that was a mistake. You know, you need to make sure that you don't sacrifice uh, the resources and make sure you have the right resources to be able to achieve as a leader. Mine was um, not in something I didn't do, was in something I did do, is that I didn't follow my own advice, which I didn't have passion to do the news. I didn't have it. And CBS's uh, head of news, Andrew Hayward, wanted me to do the morning news, CBS this morning. And I didn't, Hannah turned was great at it, but um so he said, well, just do it for a week. You know, maybe you'll like it. And I was so beyond terrible. I mean, I remember once they, they got really mad at me because we were doing a Christmas lineup of toys and it had um, Mr. Potato Head was showing all the toys. And I finally said, well, what happened to Mrs. Potato Head? <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> right to commercial, the end of my news career. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good one. You know, I can say, Leslie, I, I agree with you is, um, you know, I, I my one piece of advice and if, you know, and I, I've tried to follow it is, you know, don't get distracted by the noise. And by the noise, I mean, sometimes everyone is chasing the same gig, like truly know what it is you want to do and go after it. You know, for example, when I finally got this job of just hosting Grand Slam Tennis, so many people at ESPN were like, how did that happen? How do you just have to do tennis now? That's all you have to do? How, how is that just? And I'm like, because it's all I've ever wanted to do. And I went after that. You were throwing your hat in the ring for NBA, NFL, whatever seemed to be the get. And I stayed true to what I wanted to do. That's great. And we're so, so lucky that you did focus just right. on tennis. <laughs> <laughs> and tennis is lucky to have both of you. That was my conversation with Leslie Visser and Stacey Allister. Thanks to both for joining us. Next time, the woman who started it all at UConn, Rebecca Lobo, speaks about the fight for equal pay and what it was like in the early days of the WNBA. And executive Sam Saperstein shares strategies on how to advocate for fair pay in your own workplace. Don't miss the last episode of Equal Play, 50 Years of Equal Pay in Tennis, presented by J.P. Morgan. Equal Play, 50 Years of Equal Pay in Tennis, is presented by J.P. Morgan. It's a production of Neon Hum Media and the United States Tennis Association, and it's hosted by me, Chris McKendry. The series producers are Rob Dozier and Mia Warren. Executive producers are Shara Morris and Matt Guerra. Production management help from Samantha Allison and Taylor Sniffen. Our theme song was composed by Asha Ivanovich. Sam Baer is our engineer. Special thanks to Tara Bell and Rashina Warren.